Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtray. Except, if you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know from the backdrop that I'm not at Courtray. In fact, I'm nowhere near Courtray. We've been asking ourselves for the past year, what does it mean exactly when we say here at Courtray? During the pandemic, we've been all over the place. Where is Courtray? But I'm definitely not anywhere near court, right? Because I'm not in Guelph. I'm at my parents' place. I'm in Brighton, Ontario. My mom had surgery on Thursday and I came here to help them out as my mom recovers from her surgery. Today we are continuing our series on vocation. For the past three weeks we've been asking ourselves what it means to have a Christian calling. We looked at the calling of Moses and we saw that first of all we are called personally. We're called to God. We're called to someone not to something like a job or a place. And then we read in Jeremiah about how the people of Israel were called to seek the peace and prosperity of the city of Babylon, even though they were in exile and the Babylonians were their enemies. As Christians, we have that same calling, not to condemn the culture around us or to cut ourselves off from it, but to embrace it, to love our neighbor as ourselves and to serve others. And then two weeks ago, Allison walked us through the calling of the first disciples in Luke's Gospel. We heard how our vocation is God inviting us to uniquely live out who he has made us to be. And that he calls us in our own language, the language of fishermen, or physics, or finance, or fixing things that are broken, relationships, machines, you name it. Your particular gift will lead you into that. Vocation is not the same thing as occupation. No, it's bigger. Our vocation transcends our occupation. But God also invites us to expand our imagination for how he's going to use something we're already doing, something specific. It may be our job. It may be a particular gift we have, a circumstance in our life, a friendship or two, a group we're a part of or a group we're considering starting. And I think vocation can change for many of us, depending on the season of our life as well. So vocation, vo vocation is not one thing, necessarily. Last Sunday, Lindsay Sitzma took us into Paul's teaching that we are ordinary broken people, a lot like clay pots, into whom God has poured his treasure. He fills us with his power and his purpose, and he sends us out in our weakness and invites us to be honest about that in order to show his strength and truth and beauty to the world. Today we're going to see how that plays out in the life of the church. We'll be looking at two definitive moments in the calling of the church in its very earliest days. First, we'll consider the mandate Jesus gives the disciples after his resurrection, and then we're going to explore a picture of the life of the early church in Jerusalem after the Holy Spirit came on the believers at Pentecost. We pick up the story after Jesus had been executed and some women who were followers of his had gone to his tomb, where, to their shock and incredible joy, they encountered Jesus risen from the dead. And he told them to let his disciples know that they should go to Galilee and that he was going to meet them there. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Dear God, may the words of my mouth 
And may the meditations of all of our hearts, even as we're scattered throughout the city of Guelph, across the province and, and beyond, would you draw us into your unity, Holy Spirit? Would you lead us into the right worship of you? And we ask that the meditations of our hearts and minds would be not only acceptable, but also pleasing to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage has come to be known as the Great Commission. William Carey, the pioneer English missionary to India in the late 18th and early 19th century, coined that phrase. And Hudson Taylor popularized it as he called others to join him in taking the gospel to China through the work of the China Inland Mission, which he founded and which my great-grandparents served with Quite a long time ago. So Matthew 28 conjures up certain ideas for us, at least it does for those of us who were raised in the church. We may think of missionaries going to the ends of the earth and making disciples of all nations. They did, and they still do. At Courtright, through our missions budget, we sent out 20 missionaries this past year beyond the city of Guelph. All the nations. Amazing. And this past century, really two centuries, has seen a global transformation with the gospel going to all the nations in a way that, that um, truly has transformed the globe. But what does this mean for our calling in Guelph? Is our vocation to go to all the nations? Does it, does it mean that if we stay where we are, if you remain in Guelph, you're not fulfilling the Great Commission, you're not listening to Jesus, you're not really obeying him? I think some of us wrestle with that question. I've, I've talked to some of you who felt like maybe you didn't listen, maybe you were meant to go overseas and serve God in, in a missionary role as we understand overseas missions. So this today is an opportunity for us to reflect on our calling as a church and how it affects us individually. One of my favorite films of all time is Chariots of Fire, and, and uh, that film tells the story of Eric Little, a Scottish runner who competed in the 1924 Olympics. But there was a tension in his life between his calling and his prowess, his success as an athlete, and his calling as a Christian. At one point he says to his sister Jenny, Jenny was always trying to convince him to give up running, which she considered to be uh, petty and, and uh, a preoccupation, not 
important, like being a missionary to China. Uh, Eric Little says to his sister Jenny, he says, I, I believe God has made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric Little knew God had called him to make disciples, but he also knew that he had a gift, that God made him fast. And I, th I think he knew that his gift of running and his, his purpose, his larger purpose in his whole life were together. They were not separate, one secular and one uh, truly of God. He knew that God could use his swiftness to empower his witness. Little eventually did go to China where he served as a missionary. And my father-in-law, my wife Judith's father, was in a POW camp with Eric Little and wrote a book uh, about his experience called A Boy's War by David Michelle, just a little plug there uh, for what is a, a really good book. But Eric Little's greatest influence came because God made his swiftness and God took his swiftness and called him to run and called him to live that out as, a, as an athlete. Uh, to the glory of God. And, and it also came because he was faithful. He gave up his chance of winning a gold medal in the 100 meters event because he refused to run on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day. And, and, and that left an impression on people. That was a sacrifice that people noticed, even if they thought he was crazy. He was obedient to God and his efforts were multiplied. We see that multiplication in the life of the early church as the Holy Spirit comes on the followers of Jesus gathered in Jerusalem. And then the apostle Peter preaches the first sermon in the history of the church. And we're going to read now from Acts chapter 2, 41 to 47 to see what happened next. So again, Acts 2, 41 to 47. Those who accepted his message, that is the preaching of Peter, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So how do we explain the growth in the church in Jerusalem at that time? It was remarkable growth, and, and it continues, you can read about it, in the whole of the book of Acts and beyond into the first couple of centuries of Christian history. Well, I think we can explain that by saying that it was simply because the first Christian communities were so attractively different from the culture around them. And we see why at the beginning of verse 42, when it says that they devoted themselves, and then there's a list of various things. To devote something means to give it away. So Luke is telling us, Luke the author of the book of Acts, is telling us that they gave themselves to learning and worship 
and fellowship and to a number of other practices, as we've read about. But beneath all of that, they gave themselves away to God and to each other. That's what really made them so remarkable. It was this radical unselfishness. And you see it in everything they did. In, in verse 44, it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions they gave to anyone as he had need. Instead of being selfish about their goods and their property, they share not only with one another, but with others. This wasn't literal communism. Sometimes when I've led Bible studies on this, people will say it, it sounds like a communist society. But uh, no, it's clear in the New Testament that Christians retained their own separate property. They didn't sign over all their assets and then get a salary from the central committee. No, it was actually even more radical than that. It was a voluntary spiritual communalism. It was a radical unselfishness when it came to their goods and lives. And this word together keeps coming up through this passage in Acts 2. It says, all the believers were together in verse 44. Every day they continued to meet together in verse 46. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together. And they were from all over the world. And they're doing everything together in spite of their cultural differences. They're giving themselves away. Yes, even though they were from different nations and spoke different languages, they were all Jewish believers. That's true. But skip ahead 10 chapters in Acts, and you'll see the church expand to include Africans, Asians, Greeks, Romans, again, all together. And we know that the church welcomed both rich and poor. Also, in a world where men dominated Christianity, saw women and men as equals. You remember who the first witnesses were to the resurrection, right? We've already talked about that. They were women. What was so distinctive about Christian faith that it had this kind of broad appeal? Well, a few things. First of all, Christians spread the idea that you should love your enemies instead of killing them, instead of killing everyone who wrongs you, taking revenge. No other culture or religion produced that. Secondly, other religions did talk about taking care of the poor, but there was an energy coming out of Christianity that was unprecedented in that regard. Christians invented hospitals, they invented orphanages, they invented social welfare. They went on to change the world through being inventive in love in all these ways. Third, we see the very idea of universal human rights coming out of this early period in the church's history. That The idea that every human being has dignity, no matter what race or class, no matter how weak, no matter how talented, no matter how physically disabled, that is an idea that came out of Christianity. In that culture, the weak would have been left to die. That, that was a part of how the Roman Empire operated. The Greek and Roman elites, as well as later the tribal chieftains and kings of pre-Christian Europe, thought it was crazy to forgive your enemies and care for the weak. They thought society had to be based on strength and honor. So if people were to see their leaders forgiving instead of dominating and punishing, then things would fall apart. And besides, to their thinking, it was the natural way for those who are strong to enslave the weak and make the rules and take what they want when they want it. But as Christians, we're called to a different way. At the end of his life, Jesus prayed. He was with the disciples and he prayed in John 17, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. 
and for their sake I sanctify myself. And that word sanctify means I devote myself. When Christ went to the cross, he left all his greatness and all his power behind. He was giving himself away. He was devoting himself to us. He was emptying himself of the glory that he rightfully held so that we could become beautiful. He was becoming of no reputation so that we can have a name with God for all eternity. He was rejected by everybody so that we could be loved by God forever because he took the punishment that we deserved for our selfishness. After Jesus did this, and after he was raised from the dead, Christians came to believe in a God who gave himself away, who gives himself away, and they accepted that their purpose, their vocation, their calling, was not to hold on to power, not to hold on to wealth, not to hold on to glory for themselves, but to give it away, to give yourself away to other people. That God would come to earth and become weak and die on the cross to atone for our sins, that he would devote himself and give himself away. That changes you. That changes me. That changes everything. So no matter whether you're retired or working, no matter what you're studying or where you live, this is going to shape your vocation if you're a follower of Jesus. For one thing, it means you're going to get involved with the people who are poor in your city, in your neighborhood. You're not going to keep your distance from them. It's not beneath you to do that. And it's going to mean that you become unselfish with your things. You look to share your resources. You open up instead of closing yourself off. It's also going to mean that you're not condescending towards others. You know, there are foolish people out there in the world. There are deeply annoying people out there. And there are lots of people who don't give you anything, who can't help you in any way. But if you're a Christian, you know you were saved through the sacrifice of Jesus, who lowered himself. So how could you now look down on someone else? It also means that when you see opponents, people you dislike, people who have the wrong politics or the wrong beliefs of any kind, if you know what Jesus has done, if you see him on the cross dying and forgiving his enemies, even while they're killing him, that's going to change how you live. How could you then go and be unkind to someone in the lineup at the grocery store or leave a nasty comment about someone on social media or feed the resentment in your heart towards another or tear someone down through gossip and those little snide comments we make? It also means that your pride is going to start to melt. It deals with your pride. And so when you have a problem with someone else, someone's bothering you, you're in conflict with them, you don't dare say, well, I was right, and if that person wants to make peace with me, let them make the first move. No. Instead, you're going to say, I was wrong, because in some part you were. You're going to say, I'm sorry. What can I do to put things right between us? If you grasp the ultimate reality of what the death and resurrection of Jesus means, that God gave himself away and is now sending you out, that will turn you into, into a completely different kind of person. And when a group of people who are changed like that get together, it's a new human society. It's a new humanity. It's the church. That's our vocation. 
and we see it play out here in Acts 2. If you're tuning into this service today and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure about what you believe, let me invite you to try it on. I hope that you see the good in Jesus and in what he calls us to. Maybe you do see that, but you're still unsure. You're, you're keeping your options open. Well, I would ask you just a simple question. Do you want that goodness, that purpose in your own life? It wasn't like the early Christians just dreamed this up. It wasn't like they sat around saying, let's be really nice people. Let's be the nicest people ever. Let's create humanitarianism and philanthropy. No, they were gripped by the fact that God had given himself away. And they put that truth at the heart of their lives as the ultimate reality in the universe. If you want that too, then I would invite you to ask Jesus to show himself to you. Just a simple prayer. Ask him to make himself real. And, and then get involved with others who are trying to live his way. Look at the kind of church it was in Jerusalem, right? Just let, let's, let's step back for a minute and consider the different aspects of the church described in Acts chapter 2. Look at the balance of it. They followed the apostles' teaching. Well, that's theology. Hmm, so they were obviously good Presbyterians, right? They also had dynamic worship. They were praising God all the time. Sounds like they're Pentecostals. Thirdly, they, they had this intentional, deliberate fellowship, taking the time to break bread with each other day after day. Well, that, that is definitely Mennonite. And the bread would have been really good if it was. Fourth, there was this radical, relentless commitment to evangelism. Well, that, to me, sounds like a non-denominational church plant. And then they were helping people in need. They were pursuing justice and equity in their small, everyday ways. Well, now they sound like mainline Protestants. They sound like the United Church. Well, guess what? A really great, spirit-filled church does all of those things. We are called to all of it. And especially, we're not called to keep it to ourselves. We come back to the Great Commission here. Therefore, go and make disciples, says Jesus. The pandemic we're still traveling through has challenged our complacency in a lot of ways. It's challenged many things about our lives. I've been asking myself the question, how did I perhaps get to the point of considering Sunday mornings to be the main thing that defines us as Christians? How, how did we end up with that assumption, if, if you did? A few years ago, I heard about a steak study at the University of Guelph. They were looking for people they could pay to eat steak. Well, I was in immediately. It sounded like the best thing ever. A little glimpse of heaven, perhaps. And I was accepted. You know, there were, there were criteria. You had to be able to tell between different tastes. And they put you through a series of tests. And, and so I went home to my family, who they say that the hot sauce over the decades has burned my taste buds off completely. But no, no, I, I, I made the grade for the steak study. 
As it turned out, the steak study wasn't so great in the end. Little pieces of often overcooked beef on these clinical white trays. The meat was always cold. But I enjoyed the whole experience because of the people. I got to meet a bunch of people who were not part of my church world. And I had some amazing conversations with them. You know, we'd go out and hang out after we ate our beef together. And uh, I saw that as God having given me this little window to remind me of the calling that I have, which is not just to be in the church all the time. And I think that's an issue for some of us, maybe for many of us. Christian vocation, in the end, is not about us. It's not for us. It's for the sake of others. And that's where the other meaning of vocation can help us out. Yes, we have a general vocation as Christians, but we also have specific callings to be a student or to do a job in our workplace or to start a business or if we're retired to be part of some activity or organization or to get involved with the community or with our own extended family. We read about how the Christians in Jerusalem met together in the temple courts and those temple courts were public places. We are sometimes tempted to keep our Christian faith private. There, there's a lot of pressure in our culture to do that. But the right worship of God is not limited to Sunday mornings. It happens on Monday morning and through the whole week in our day-to-day -day work and activity. And the plausibility of the gospel, whether it's believable to people, comes down to the question, are we going to live out our discipleship? at school or at work or in public in various ways. The gospel needs to be seen before it can be heard. And in the workplace, we meet people who have no idea about Christian faith, but they're drawn to what's described in Acts 2. They're drawn to generosity. They're drawn to glad and sincere hearts in a world where cynicism is everyone's default position. Let's be clear that the authority, the power to do any of this only comes from Jesus as the Holy Spirit equips us. Christ calls us to worship him and he sends us out. As we saw in Matthew 28, it's not enough to be a disciple of Jesus. He's saying that we have to make disciples if we want to follow him. So here's the question I want to leave you with. How are you using your time, your gifts, your resources to make disciples? Your calling as a Christian can't be simply to enjoy a relationship with Jesus. It has to mean that you're sharing what you're learning, how you're living your faith out, you're talking about it, you're inviting others to experience it. Would you ask God this morning to show you how you can make your faith more visible? And would you then trust in his authority that he will open the doors for you to walk through. Why don't we take just a moment to, to pray about that. Um, I invite you in this, in this silence to ask God if he would guide you, if by his grace he would be with you in that.